Chapter Thirteen of the Lonely Warrior by Claude C. Washburn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. If Stacy had been at all curious about himself, he would probably have thought that his Omaha adventure had left him precisely as he was before. He might only have been concerned at the memory of the sudden ungovernable passion to which he had fallen prey on the night of the lynching. He was not interested in himself even faintly. Impressions of others, and, especially, impressions of things, flowed in upon him, since that was the way he was made, but chaotically, since he did not seek them or try consciously to arrange them. He was apathetic, but not weary. He saw life as flashes of lightning in chaos. Or, no, the figure was too grandiose sparks travelling with haphazard chain-like velocity in the soot of a chimney. There was a washout on the road, and Stacy's train was delayed for many hours, so that he did not reach Vernon until late in the afternoon. He hired a taxi and drove home. It was the fashionable hour. Vernon had certainly become metropolitan of late years. The streets were thronged, and the handsome boulevard into which the taxi presently turned was a river of gleaming motor-cars, chauffeur in livery on the front seat, perfectly gowned women in the tonneau. Smooth, very. The mellow October coolness in the air, and the lights that began to shine palely against the sunset, played up to it. People waved to Stacy, smiling at his plebeian conveyance, and he lifted his hat abstractly but at heart he was full of a sick distaste for all this elegance, this physical luxury that seemed to him not so much to hide as to reveal what lay beneath, the vulgarity, the stupidity, the greed. Arrived at home, he bathed and dressed, then went down to the library, where he sipped a highball moodily and waited for his father. Mr. Carroll's handsome face lighted up at sight of his son. "'Well, well, this is fine!' he exclaimed. "'When did you get back? And what have you been doing in that disgraceful place all this time?' "'Oh, I saw the riot,' said Stacy, shaking hands, and stayed on for the sequel. "'May I get you a highball, sir?' "'No. Come into the dining-room. I'll mix a cocktail. Parker will have had the ice all ready. We can talk at the same time.' Stacy watched him as he measured out the gin and vermouth. "'Disgraceful, the whole business,' Mr. Carroll went on, emphasizing his words by a vigorous agitation of the silver shaker. "'There's never been a time in the history of this country when respect for law and order was at so low an ebb.' He poured his cocktail into a glass and took it over to the table. "'Come on, son,' he said. "'Sit down.' Dinner will be served in a few minutes, I dare say. Sit down and tell me the whole story. Your health, my boy. Thank you, sir, said Stacy, obeying. But there isn't very much to tell. I'll spare you details of the lynching itself. They were in all your papers, of course. After the riot, the Legion men organized, and, as I happened to have my uniform with me, I went in with them and helped arrest a lot of the people implicated. Young Trail and I worked together. Mr. Carroll sat up straight, his eyes shining. You did that? Good for you, Stacy. Tell me all about it. Stacy related his experiences, stressing details which seemed unimportant to himself, 
such as his and the lieutenant's adventures in making the arrests, and omitting to speak of Monaghan, because he thought his father would not approve of his behaviour in that matter, and Stacy, though with a sort of melancholy absence of feeling, wanted to be agreeable to his father. Parker had served the soup, but Mr. Carroll, though he prized dinner highly, left it untouched until Stacy had finished speaking. "'Good!' he cried then. "'Good! I'm proud of you. But hang it!' he added boyishly. "'How adventures do dog you about, don't they? So General Wood was the man for the job? I knew he'd prove to be.' "'Yes,' said Stacy. "'A good man,' remarked Mr. Carroll, eating his soup now. "'I hope he'll be our next president.' "'Hope so, too,' Stacy assented. Mr. Carroll's face was radiant. "'Glad you feel the same way about it. We've had enough of the waste and radicalism and shilly-shallying of this administration,' he asserted. "'We want a strong, safe man for president, representing a decent party. General Wood fills the bill.' "'Oh,' said Stacy thoughtlessly, "'I don't care anything about all that. One party seems to me as silly as the other.' I only want General Wood to be elected president because I suppose he wants to be president, and I'd like him to have whatever he wants. But at these words the elation had vanished from Mr. Carroll's face. It looked grave now and sad. Stacy bit his lip. Why the devil, he thought angrily, couldn't he have kept his mouth shut? He didn't seem to have decent control over his words. I'm sure he'd make a good president, he said apologetically but they could neither of them keep off from subjects on which they disagreed, these being nearly all conceivable subjects except their unreasoning mutual affection, which would not have lent itself especially well to conversation even had Mr. Carroll not been shy and Stacy intensely reserved. It was Mr. Carroll's turn next. "'All that business, that damnable riot,' he said, as though involuntarily, a fanatical gleam in his eye, I felt sure at the time that there was Bolshevism behind it. Did you see any evidence of that? No, sir, returned Stacy dryly. He tried to keep his tone expressionless, knowing that his father literally couldn't help making the remark. The thing was an obsession. But he probably, in spite of himself, revealed the disdain his father must have known the question would arouse in him. The rest of the dinner passed off in a dreary attempt to revive the faded cordiality. Afterward they went into the living room, and Stacy walked restlessly about. "'A game of pinochle, son?' Mr. Carroll suggested presently. "'Thanks, no, sir. I've really got to go out and make a call,' Stacy returned. He knew he was being cruel. There was a faint wistfulness about his father that touched Stacy dully but he simply could not endure the repression he must exert upon himself if he were to stay there and talk with his father. All his words would have to be studied, never casual. He was incapable of it. "'All right,' said Mr. Carroll. "'You've been away a week. Of course there are people you want to see. I'll read a little while, then go up to bed. Good night.' "'Good night, sir,' said Stacy, and left the room." But in the hall outside, he hesitated for a moment, and when he had gone to the garage and brought out his car, he stopped it beside the house and returned to the living room. 
He saw, as he opened the door, that his father was not reading, but playing solitaire, and this, too, touched Stacy a little. Mr. Carroll looked up in surprise. "'I'm going to run over to see Phil and Catherine Blair for a little while,' Stacy said. "'They don't even know where I've been, and I ought to go. It occurred to me, sir, that just possibly you'd like to drive over there with me. Would you care to?' Stacy had not the slightest idea that his father would accept. Mr. Carroll disliked going out in the evening. But, to Stacy's surprise, he dropped his cards and rose at once. "'Why, yes, son, I'd be glad to go along if you really want me,' he replied. "'I like your friends, the Blairs,' he added, in an apologetic tone, when he and Stacy were in the car. Phil's a thoughtful fellow, with talent, too, I should judge, though I don't pretend to know anything about architecture. And Catherine's a fine girl, an unusual girl." Again Stacy was surprised. Phil himself opened the door, a look of warm pleasure glowing in his face. "'Well, where the deuce have you been, Stacy?' he cried. "'This is awfully good of you, Mr. Carroll. Come in, come in!' And he ushered them into the house. The sitting-room glowed, too. Light from a shaded reading-lamp fell on Catherine's hair and face, illuminating the fine, close-grained skin and accentuating the firm, bony structure beneath it. Catherine was sitting in a low easy-chair, over the arms of which her two sons leaned closely to gaze down at the large book that lay open on her knees. She rose swiftly at sight of her guests, but with a shy grace. Her hand went to her hair. As for the two boys, they dashed at Stacy immediately. For just an instant, while he held them off, he considered the scene wistfully. It all seemed so far from any mood his tortured inharmonious spirit was able to achieve. But Catherine, after a faint smile at him, was shaking hands with his father, and the boys were growing importunate. "'Come on, Uncle Stacy!' Carter shouted. "'Do fly away, Jack, for him!' Come on, over here. Carter, Carter, said his mother, not so loud, and let Uncle Stacy alone. No, but he wants to play, don't you, Uncle Stacy? Carter insisted, moderating his voice, however. Sure, said Stacy, only wouldn't you, er, uh, just as leave, try some other game? No, fly away, Jack, the boy returned firmly. I do it for him sometimes, and he can't ever find them. Only, he added in a tremulous whisper, they come off kind of often. Stacy set patiently about the game. In a way it was a relief, like knitting, he supposed. But, as he played it, he heard his father at the other end of the room, proudly telling Phil and Catherine of the Omaha adventure and an odd dream-like sensation came over Stacy of not knowing which was real, this, the childish game with the boys, or that, the story his father was repeating. Neither, perhaps. Phil came over and stood near him. "'A sad day for you that you introduced that game,' he remarked. "'Oh, I don't know. I don't mind it,' Stacy returned. "'Come back, Jack. Come back, Jill.' "'Did I really introduce it?' he thought hazily. Was it really I, or some ancestor of mine? The dreadful monotony of it, Phil added with a laugh. That's its charm. Enough. That will do now, said Phil presently. Up you go, boys. To bed. Run. Beat it. 
Beat it, beat it, Jack repeated delightedly. Mother won't let me say beat it, Carter remarked. Won't she? Well, I suppose she'll let me say it. Carter rushed across the room. Mother, mother, he cried, both on the way and after arrival. Daddy says you'll let him say beat it. Will you? Then why won't you let me? Shh, said Catherine, looking a little dazed. Carter, this is Uncle Stacy's father. What will he think of you if you shout that way? The boy shook Mr. Carroll's extended hand politely. But mother, he repeated, Daddy said, Yes, I know. You tell Daddy that I say he's a great goose, and that geese can say what they please, I suppose. Then run up to bed and see if you can help Jack undress nicely. I'll come up and kiss you both good night when you're ready. The boys went, reluctantly, with dragging steps, but without protest. However, at the door, Carter turned and ran back, his brother following like a faithful dog. "'I guess I forgot to say thank you, Uncle Stacy, for Jack and Jill,' he observed. "'That's all right, Carter,' said Stacy. "'Night, sleep tight.' "'Don't let the bedbugs bite,' Carter shouted joyfully. "'Carter,' called his mother, but he was really gone this time. "'Triumphant exit, wasn't it?' Phil remarked. "'Come out on the porch with me, Stacy. It will rest you.' They went out and walked up and down together. There was a pleasant coolness in the air. The city glittered beneath them. "'Sorry you ran into all that mess in Omaha,' Phil said presently. "'Must have given you a rotten sense of discouragement.' He waited, as though for a reply, but Stacy made none. "'The trouble with crowds is, I suppose,' he continued thoughtfully, "'that you get only the least common denominator. What all men have in common is their primitive passions.' It's only what each has by himself that counts to his credit. Any man is better than a crowd. He paused again. No doubt, said Stacy dispassionately. Philip Blair ceased walking, leaned back against the railing of the porch, and considered Stacy with a smile. By the way, he remarked irrelevantly, yesterday I got a statement of receipts and disbursements from the fund for Viennese children. Stacy frowned. Oh, you did, he said dryly. And how did you happen to get it? I can guess. Oh, Phil returned simply, Catherine and I send what we can. He laughed a pleasant laugh. You hypocrite, he exclaimed. Oh, you damned hypocrite. Stacy shook his head. It's no use gunning around in me for virtue, Phil, he said quietly. What I gave them hasn't at all the meaning of what you've given them, whatever that may be. I've kept out two hundred a month for myself. Shucks! Phil exclaimed disgustedly. You're becoming puerile, Stacy. Do you think I care about the amount, if any, of self-sacrifice that you showed? The only thing that interests me is that you were interested in the suffering of Viennese children. Stacy gazed away absently at the gleaming city. I don't see anything strange about that, he said finally. There's been enough suffering in the world, especially among children. You think, Phil, that I have some malevolent philosophy of life. You're mistaken. I haven't any philosophy. It's only that every day I run across suffering, so much of it that's caused deliberately. Then I get a craving to destroy. That's all. 
he concluded listlessly. Not so much deliberately as stupidly, Phil murmured. But Stacy was walking up and down again. Presently he paused before the large window that opened into the sitting-room. He gazed in at Catherine and his father. Phil, who had followed Stacy, and stood now at his shoulder, smiled. That always seemed to me an unfair advantage to take of people, he said, to watch them when they don't know you're there, like looking at them in their sleep. No, worse than that, for their personality is one thing when it's focused on you, quite another focused on someone else. You're not meant to see the other. It contains no adaptation to you. That's why it's a relief, Stacy returned. For a brief moment you get the sense of yourself abolished, and experience peace. Hmm, said Phil reflectively. Also, he added after a pause, I dare say this matter of personal adaptation to the individual accounts for the emptiness of talk, and thought, in a group. The adaptation is necessarily lacking. Stacy smiled faintly. Always thorough, Phil, aren't you? he observed. He had a strange, shadowy sense of being back in his old pre-war relationship to Phil. There was pleasure in this for Stacy, but melancholy also, since he knew it was an illusion. He continued to gaze in through the window at his father and Catherine. Mr. Carroll was leaning forward in his chair, with a certain courtliness, and smiling. Catherine's face in the light from the electric lamp appeared mobile and full of expression. They seemed to be talking freely. "'I never saw Catherine so bold before,' Stacy remarked finally, turning away. "'I swear I'm jealous.' "'Oh,' Phil returned quietly, "'she's always shyer with you than with anyone else.' "'Is she? That's silly. Now what do you suppose they're talking about?' asked Stacy idly. Philip Blair smiled. "'You, no doubt.' "'Horrid thought!' Come on, let's go in. We were watching you from outside the window, he announced maliciously, as they re-entered the room. Catherine flushed. Phil said, Oh, shut up, Stacy, Phil interrupted. I won't have my wife teased. By the way, your friend, Mrs. Latimer, has been here a number of times. Stacy was interested. You like her, Catherine? he inquired. Very much, she replied the old shyness back again, stronger than ever, in voice and face. Perhaps she was vexed with it, and struggled against it, for... The last time she came, she brought her daughter, Mrs. Price, with her, Catherine added, then bit her lip, lest she should have said something awkward. Marion! Stacy exclaimed, but he was not perturbed. He had forgotten Marion completely in the last week. He was merely surprised for he somehow could not fancy Marion and Catherine together. "'Mrs. Latimer is a fine woman, with an affected idiot of a husband,' Mr. Carroll observed. "'Can't say I care much for Marion.' Stacy smiled, almost imperceptibly. What a straightforward, loyal character his father had, he thought, everything clear, black and white, and never more kindly than here now with Phil and Catherine. Stacy had a feeling of looking at his father from a long way off, or, or, at the reflection of him in a mirror. What an odd blurred evening, and pleasant! He fell into a reverie while the others talked. 
Why should there be this wistfulness about his father? Mr. Carroll had a strong personality. He could manage men. Decisions snapped, clean-cut from his mind. Perhaps he was wistful because he had no grown-up life outside of business. His ideas on general subjects were immature. But before long Mr. Carroll rose. "'Come on, Stacy,' he remarked. "'Phil has to go to work early tomorrow, and Catherine must be tired, too. You don't mind a grandfather calling you by your first name?' he asked her, with a pleasant smile. "'Night, Phil,' said Stacy at the door, and shook his friend's hand casually. "'Nice people, very,' his father observed, after they had driven for some minutes in silence. "'But I don't think Phil looks well, do you?' "'No,' returned Stacy, surprised. "'I thought he seemed gayer tonight than for a long while. He's always been atrociously thin, you know.' But the strange soft sense of haziness vanished in the night. Next morning, after breakfast, Stacy stood looking absently out of his study window, with no sense but of a poignant emptiness. Parker came up after a time to say that Mrs. Latimer had called to see him, but even at this Stacy felt nothing save a little surprise. He went down at once and greeted Mrs. Latimer pleasantly. She looked, he thought, rather worn, faintly older but he said to himself that this was probably the effect of the cruel morning light. Moreover, as soon as she spoke and smiled, the impression vanished, as carelessly as it had come. "'Of course you don't want to see me, or you'd have come to my house,' she said. "'But I really wanted to see you, so I couldn't resist coming. Silly, wasn't it?' "'Not at all,' he replied. "'An excellent idea. What the Italians call genial.' piquant, too, with just a touch of impropriety about it, since if we had been of the same age we'd undoubtedly have married. He was merely saying words, letting them say themselves, but Mrs. Latimer flushed like a girl. Stacy, she cried, shame on you! Come on up to my study, if you don't mind climbing the stairs, he suggested. That will make it still worse. She laughed, and they went up but when they had sat down they both became silent. "'How's Marion and the new menage?' Stacy asked after a moment. Mrs. Latimer gave him a quick, curious glance, but there was nothing except polite interest in his face and tone. Nor, indeed, was there more than that in his thoughts. He asked after Marion, because she had been recalled to his mind the night before, and because Mrs. Latimer was her mother. "'To tell the truth, I don't know,' she replied. "'I don't think Marion is particularly happy, but then I don't think she ever was. Marion is enigmatic because she has two such different sides to her nature that neither can be the truth about her. And what that truth is, I, for one, have long since given up trying to discover. Marion seems to me to drift, rather carelessly and recklessly, as though she were saying, "'What does it matter?' It's not really I who am drifting. Stacy showed some interest in this. That's rather profound, he observed appreciatively. Hope you don't do that sort of thing with me. Mrs. Latimer smiled. I have to, she remarked, since you won't. Again there was a silence. Stacy, she said abruptly, I'm so very sorry you happened into that terrible affair in Omaha. 
It seems to me sometimes that some ugly fate is dogging you, to single out everything evil and say, here, don't overlook this. Here's something really horrid. It isn't fair. It simply isn't fair, she concluded almost passionately. Stacy raised his eyebrows. It's awfully good of you to be so considerate of me, he replied. I appreciate it. And indeed, he tried to. Philip Blair said the same thing last evening, by the way. I'm very glad you've taken to going around there. But really, there's nothing to be perturbed about. I'm not changed by Omaha. This was no worse than a thousand things I saw, almost daily, in France. Worse? It was nothing. Suddenly his face twitched. If you'd seen my friend, Grice, die! He drew his hand across his forehead. Come, he said. One doesn't talk of things like that. Mrs. Latimer's face had looked perplexed and doubtful at Stacy's initial coolness. It became grave again and affectionately apprehensive now. It isn't, she said gently, that anything you have seen is worse than what you saw in France. It is only the persistent hammering on the same theme. Oh, he replied in a hard voice, I suppose you think I'm being steadily turned into some kind of red revolutionary. Not at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. When I see what there is in men beneath the crust, I'm all for preserving the crust, any old crust, the one we've got, even. She gazed at him sadly. I wish you'd go away for a while, she murmured. Go away, he returned. I can't go away from myself, can I? I'm just like the rest, with a crust. Suddenly one of his hot, unreasoning rages swept over him, like a physical thing climbing from his feet to his head. It's no good to do away with myself, he said in an odd resonant voice, but not loud. That's too little. I'd blow up everything with myself, everyone, my father with his bigoted prehistoric ideas, your husband, with his petulant selfishness, Marion, stony at one moment, sentimentalizing prettily over a rose-petal the next, all men, all women, and rebuild things, never. Let them go smash, end, vanish, and leave clean, empty space. She trembled before his fierceness, but shook her head courageously. No, she said, with brave obstinacy, you wouldn't. Why not? he demanded wildly. Do you think I've got any pity in me? Never a drop. The hot wave of anger passed now, leaving in Stacy only a sick feeling of enhanced emptiness. There were drops of sweat on his forehead. Again Mrs. Latimer shook her head. No, I know you haven't, not at present. But you wouldn't do it because you're too courageous. You wouldn't give up in that way. In spite of you, your strong soul will insist that, bad as everything is, you'll see what can be done with it. Why? he asked dully. It's all a rotten mess. There's no scheme, no one, behind it. I didn't say there was, she answered steadily. I only say that anyone as strong as you must make a scheme himself. They were both silent for a time. Forgive my violence said Stacy apologetically at last. I get these silly fits when I lose my self-control once in a while. Idleness they come from, I suppose, lack of anything to do to work off energy. 
Feeling genuinely embarrassed, he had not been looking at Mrs. Latimer while he spoke. Looking at her now, he was amazed to note the sorrow in her eyes. "'Go away, Stacy,' she murmured. "'Go away for a while. I'm afraid for you.' "'Go away?' he repeated, but gently this time. "'Where to? Can you find me access to another planet?' Nevertheless, he added, I will go if you want me to. Also, I note that the pageant season is on now. It will always be something to avoid that. What is it this time? Mrs. Latimer laughed hysterically. V Vernon, past and present. The, the whole story of Vernon. Now fancy, said Stacy. End of chapter 13